This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. As they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. Why haven't you unpacked your suitcase from our trip? You still <laughs> your, your your suitcase is still in the hallway, still packed. I'm ready to go again. Was <laughs> the thing? It's. Did you uh, bring that knife with you? No, of course not. That knife belonged to the villa that we were staying in. <laughs> we're we're doing a <laughs> final. Come on. A final sweep. Getting all of our things packed up, looking for the last minute things that we always leave. And uh, I find this giant butcher knife in the bedroom. And I'm like, what is this knife doing in here? Yeah, it was on the, the bedside table. Apparently, Kat had heard a noise in the, yeah, middle, I heard a noise. In the middle of the night and uh, had gone and taken this huge knife from the kitchen, and yeah, which is not uncommon. She does that in our house. For a minute, I thought maybe she had packed it and brought it from the United States with her. I didn't realize that you had... <laughs> you know they would have taken it away from me at the airport. <laughs> that's, that's, that's true. It would have been right in character. That's enough. All right. Do you have a story to tell me, Judgy Knife Man? I do, in fact. It takes a special type of scuba gear to get down to the depths below 100 feet. Beneath the surface of the no, water. Not the same kind that I have with Nemo on it? No, no. Okay. In, in order to dive deeper than 100 feet, divers use what's called mixed gas diving equipment. That helps them safely descend to up to 350 feet without the diver suffering from nitrogen narcosis, mm-hmm. among other problems. The bends, if you will. And that's the equipment that this group of mixed gas divers were using in Lake Tahoe on July 23rd, 2011. They were at about 265 feet below the surface when they discovered the body. Yeah. Okay. I'm sorry. I want to get right back to this body thing. Yeah. Um, also, that makes me think of that Stephen King short story that became Stand By Me. Gross movie. <laughs> I just don't like that part with the leech. Anyway. Uh-huh. Yeah, that was rough. Um. What was I saying before I distracted myself? Oh, yes. Where is Lake Tahoe? It's in Nevada. Okay. It's uh, by Reno. Mm. It's uh, it's a lovely resort area. Lots of casinos and that sort of thing. So they're diving. They discover this body. It was positioned on an underwater shelf. Because of the depth, 
at which it was discovered. And the fact that the shelf quickly dropped off to about 1,600 feet, it was not an easy retrieval. They had to use a remote-controlled mini-submarine with a robotic arm to kind of go out and retrieve the remains. That's kind of cool. (laughs) It was July 27th, four days later, by the time they were able to do this. This happened on what is the west side of Lake Tahoe, near Rubicon Point. The extremely well-preserved body was wearing a scuba wetsuit and was still buckled into a weight belt and an air tank. So, obviously, something happened to a diver. (sighs) The strange thing was that even though this body was amazingly well-preserved, was, well, it seemed fresh, the scuba gear had a certification tag on it from 1994. Wow. 17 years before the body was discovered. So authorities at Lake Tahoe delayed releasing the name of the person until the dental records confirmed the identity. His name was Donald Christopher Windecker. Searching missing persons reports, it was determined that Windecker's disappearance was on July 10th, 1994. He had been submerged, still wearing his wetsuit and scuba gear, For 17 years, and because of the cold water and the deepness of Lake Tahoe, it appeared as though he just drowned the day before. Authorities were shocked when they saw the condition of the body. On that day in 1994, 44-year-old former city planner of Reno, Donald Christopher Windecker, went diving with a friend. The plan was to dive to about 100 feet, and initially, according to his friend, the dive was pretty uneventful. Nothing nothing really unusual happened. Mm-hmm. But as the pair began to ascend, Windecker apparently started experiencing problems with his equipment, and he quickly began to sink. Now, his, his diving buddy w- tried to help him out, but he was running out of air pretty quickly himself and was forced to surface. Donald was not seen again. For 17 years. Are we sure this wasn't murder? Pretty sure it wasn't murder, yes. Right. It, it, I'm, I'm sure they investigated that at the time of his disappearance, but there were no indications that uh, foul play was afoot. According to an article in the Los Angeles Times, Sheriff Sergeant Jim Byers said that uh, the remains were in amazing physical condition. He said that those in the group of mixed gas divers, when they saw him, they were startled because it was what they saw was just a a diver kind of, you know, motionless. And it was pretty scary for them, he said, because they were wondering what this person was doing down here. Just kind of hanging out on a shelf. Yeah, 264 feet below the surface. And clearly he was not wearing uh, the type of gear required to get to that depth. They thought it was just another diver until they got a little bit closer. And the surprisingly good condition of the bodies, because the water at that level in Lake Tahoe is about 35 degrees Fahrenheit. And uh, at 265 feet, of course, that increases the pressure. And so the, the heavier pressure on the body in a rubber suit, as well as the temperature only being 35 degrees Fahrenheit, there was little chance for any kind of decomp. Oh, So the combination of the cold water and the increased pressure on the body prevented bloating. There was no buildup of gases, nothing that would cause the body to float. So this is why the body down there was so well preserved and uh, sank, did not float Ah. to the surface. Okay. I thought, well, you had mentioned he had a weight belt on. Well, that that too. And so that I assumed, but then, okay, that makes sense. 
But this has been a pattern of drownings in uh, Lake Tahoe, where even if they're not wearing weight belts because mm-hmm. of the coldness of the water and the pressure of, of the deep areas, the bodies just sink down and rest on the floor. That's so strange because in my head, of course, I've always had a fun little rhyme mm-hmm. about dying mm-hmm. in the water and it's floaty bloaty, floaty bloaty. And now <laughs> that doesn't always apply. Mm, no, not in this case. Although I really do. I, I enjoy your little song. Yeah. So no bloating, no buildup of gases, nothing, nothing that would cause the body to float to the surface. And, and that is why bodies that drown in Lake Tahoe are often not found for long periods of time. And sometimes never. This is probably why that the body was not discovered for 17 years. Right. And in addition, there are those who say that uh, there are underwater tunnels that connect Lake Tahoe <sighs> with Pyramid Lake, uh, northeast of Reno. They say that uh, on occasion, somebody will drown in one lake and the body will show up in another. Do we have any proof of that? Well... Sheriff uh, Sergeant Byers says that that's just an urban myth. Mm -hmm. But there are lots of unexplained occurrences at and under uh, Lake Tahoe. In fact, four other divers have disappeared uh, in the lake and their bodies have not yet been found. It doesn't stop there. For years, there have been rumors that Lake Tahoe was used by the mafia as a body dump site. Because of the depth of the uh, waters, it was thought that, you know, they would throw the bodies in there and they didn't float, so they would not be discovered. And again, in some of the areas of the lake, it's like 1,600 feet deep. It's it's deep. And there have been stories from divers that claim to have seen victims of what looked like some sort of um, mob hit or something like that at the bottom of the lake. They were anchored with their feet in casino ice buckets filled with concrete. Oh, no. Quote, wearing pinstripe suits with sneers on their faces and bullet holes in their foreheads. Okay, this sounds very made up to me. Well, this is according to an article in the San Francisco Chronicle uh, dating back to 2004. Again, a story, mostly from people who claimed to have seen it, but there is no physical evidence. Mm -hmm. There are also stories that come from divers that claim to have ventured into the deeper parts of Lake Tahoe and have witnessed these bodies anchored to the floor of the lake by their concrete uh, shoes drifting in the current like seaweed. Uh, The problem is at 1,600 feet, it's very hard to retrieve bodies uh, or even get down there. So it's also said that the floor of Lake Tahoe is littered with the well-preserved remains of Chinese railroad workers that died during the construction of the railway across the Sierra Nevada uh, in the 1860s. So when one of the uh, immigrant Chinese workers died, whether it be from disease or an accident, their bodies were just unceremoniously tossed into the lake. And there is evidence that that did happen. There are records that uh, that actually did happen. Now, there are divers who also claim to have seen these bodies and describe them as looking as though they had died yesterday. Again, it's a fact that they did throw the bodies in the lake, mm-hmm. but there's no physical evidence from these people who claim to have witnessed it. And then there's this story that persists involving the longtime Tahoe fire chief who responded to a drowning call at the lake. There he found the well-preserved body of what appeared to be a young Native American girl fully clothed in 19th century ceremonial dress floating in the lake. 
There's an unsubstantiated story that Jacques Cousteau explored the lake in a mini-sub back in the mid-70s. The story goes that uh, he emerged from the submarine and he appeared pale and shaken. And when asked what he had seen down there, Cousteau reportedly said, quote, The world isn't ready for what's down there. Most authorities claim that that's just an urban legend. There is no evidence that uh, Jacques Cousteau was ever in Lake Tahoe, but it's a story that persists. There's also a story of a fisherman on Lake Tahoe. He cast his line into a deep part of the lake and eventually felt a tug on his line. When he pulled it up, it was not a fish. It was a human ear. This is a popular story that's told. But again, there's no evidence that this took place. In addition... A group of 33 scuba divers spent a month in 2016 exploring uh, much of the depths of Lake Tahoe. They did find some pretty interesting things like uh, ancient trees and some ships. Yeah, I know. And ships that were sunk over 100 years ago, but no reports of bodies. So how much of this is fact? How much of it is urban legend? And it appears to be a little bit of both. The story of the mobsters with their feet cemented into casino ice buckets drifting to and fro casually with the current in the depths of Lake Tahoe, Mm, although not disproved, has never been substantiated with physical evidence. Same with the Chinese railroad workers and lots of people claiming to have witnessed it themselves, but there is no physical evidence. What we do know for certain, though, is that uh, the unique conditions, the depth of the water, the underwater currents, and the low temperature of the water has in fact caused many divers and swimmers to simply disappear. And in the case of Donald Windecker, disappeared 17 years prior and was brought to the surface as fresh as the day he disappeared. And people fish in this this lake? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I of, don't know. Of course they do. I don't know. Yeah. Windecker's body was so incredibly well preserved, they were able to perform a normal autopsy on it, which is highly unusual for a victim that drowned in a lake 17 years prior. Right. The uh, autopsy indicated that uh, it appeared to be an equipment failure. He didn't have signs of a heart attack or anything like that. Now, I had a friend who was a scuba diver in Arizona, which is a weird place. That is a weird place. (laughs) To be a scuba diver. (laughs) But uh, he was search and rescue and retrieval uh, for one of the local law enforcement branches. There are a lot of lakes and rivers and things, you know, of course, uh, in Arizona, including one uh, lake right outside of Phoenix called Roosevelt Lake. And this would have been many, 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 many years ago. Uh, a small plane coming back from Vegas crashed into that lake, and he was required to go out in the middle of the night to retrieve the bodies. And he said that was the last time that he did that. Yeah. Uh, because he, he dove into the dark water of the lake And he's just kind of looking around and his light beam falls on this face of a man staring at him with his mouth open like he was screaming. Mm. He said, I I never went back into the water after dark. Yeah. After that, I I would have been it. I think that would feel nice. Would have been it for me. So, you know, those of you who do that sort of work. We need you. Mm. God bless you. And thank I you do it. that I, I don't have to. That's crazy. My source information, the Los Angeles Times, Ranker Wikipedia, and Time Magazine. That was interesting. And now, that thing in the middle. Did you know that the Earth wobbles? Due to uneven distribution, when the Earth rotates on its spin axis, it wobbles. Scientists call this polar motion. This wobble of the Earth's axis 
causes the Sahara to cycle between desert and grassland every 23,000 years. Okay, I've officially run out of things to say in these liners. Ooh, ooh, I just thought of another one for next time. This is The Box of Oddities. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something, if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores, and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? (sighs) Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parenting kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids, and they live about 3,000 miles away, and my daughter is expecting a child, and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life... Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura Frames and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout, and you will save. Thanks, Aura Frames, for bringing my family a little bit closer. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin, or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. 
It's weird because before we started recording, you were watching, what was it, a TikTok? Yeah. Where, where a couple of people on cruise ships across from each other were doing that. Yeah. Ezekiel! <laughs> Fuck you, Ezekiel! Also, Curtis sent us an email. I'm a relatively new listener. I love your messages to the people of the future. I think we for a while we were doing that, talking about how we record an episode on a particular date, and then there are people who don't listen to it for like a year or two, <laughs> and we'll get these comments. Yeah, when you said blah, blah, and we're like, what? <laughs> anyway, he said, I love your messages to the people of the future. I've got a message for you people of the past. Good luck finding toilet paper in eight months, dill hole. <laughs> love you, dorks, and your dorky show. Thanks, Curtis. I know you are, but what am I? What do you got for me, girl? Tuesday, September 26, 2000. The, the year 2000. 2000. The MS Express Semina left the port of Piraeus with 473 passengers and 61 crew members. Two of those passengers were 32-year-old Christine Shannon and 26-year-old Heidi Hart. Shannon and Hart, which... Sounds like an incredible uh, 1960s band. Or or a uh, vaudevillian juggling act. Ooh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, they had traveled to Israel and then through Egypt. And after exploring the Middle East, they decided that they would spend a week relaxing in Greece. It sounds like a pretty snazzy setup to me. After spending two days in Athens, they'd boarded a ferry heading to Peros around 5 p.m. They'd purchased an inexpensive ticket, and they thought that that meant that they were supposed to remain on the top deck. But since the weather was nice that evening, they really didn't mind. The ship was supposed to land at the port of Peros at about quarter after 10. For you youngins, that means 10.15. <laughs> I learned uh, because of a TikTok the other day that a lot of young people don't understand the quarter of thing. Well, that makes sense because everything's been digital for like decades right. now. Yeah, I get that. Like, why don't you just say 1015? I don't know. Are you trying to fool me with your old timey timekeeping? The ship that they were on was built as MS Course in 1966, and it had gone through many name changes as it changed owners and jobs over the years. She was reported to be carrying 17 trucks and 34 cars on her car deck, and Christine and Heidi had explored the ship a little bit when they first got on board. They were interested when they looked in the command center that they didn't see anyone there, and Christine kind of joked, I guess we're on autopilot. Uh-oh. The two found a place to settle down for the rest of the trip. Christine was reading on deck and Heidi was taking a nap until Christine heard the engines shift and she noticed the lights of the shore and assumed that they would be docking soon. So she roused Heidi and they started to kind of gather their things mm -hmm, together. Mm -hmm. That's when they looked up and saw, lighted by the ship's beacon, a huge rock. This rock was actually Portis Islet, which is one of those words that I learned 
by reading, not by hearing. And uh, so every time I see it, I say, is lit. And then I have to correct myself. And you probably just heard a little bit of that. Anyway. Well, I, I often, well, in my head, I, I always, when I'm spelling the word answer, it's answer. <laughs> I appreciate yeah, that. Yeah. yeah. Bussiness. I like to frequent local bussinesses. That's my final answer. This is getting too chaotic. <laughs> the two were approximately 30 feet away from colliding with a group of rocks taller than the ship itself. And then they collided. The rocks tore a six meter long and one meter wide hole just above the waterline. After the impact, the rocks bent the stabilizer fin backward and that fin cut through the side of the hull below the waterline and next to the engine room. So the water from the three meter gash destroyed the main generators and cut off all electrical power. Heidi raced to the box that held the life jackets and put one on. Somebody came over and shut the life jacket box. So Hart and Shannon wrenched it back open and began passing out life jackets to others on deck. That's weird. It was so weird. Was it a ghost? I don't think so. It was a ghost, wasn't it? Nah. It's like an old-timey captain ghost. The water spread beyond the engine room, and the operators couldn't remotely shut the doors due to the lack of electrical power, which seems like a real problem. Immediately following the collision, water started pouring through the fin damage opening and into the main engine room, and progressively into the other compartments, again, because those... Flood doors weren't closing. Professor David Molyneux, an expert in the performance of ships in harsh environments, said that the damage sustained by the MS Express Semina should not normally sink such a ship. The ship sank because nine of its 11 watertight compartment doors were open, even though safety laws require that ship operators close and lock those doors. So a lot of things are going wrong. Christine and Heidi said that people were panicking, of course. They were screaming and pushing, but everyone was speaking in Greek, so they couldn't understand anything (laughs) other than they were in real danger. And they saw no crew offering direction or assistance. The two knew that the panic and the other people and the fact that they didn't speak Greek was working against them. So they went away from the scrambling mass of people to the front of the boat. At this point, it's completely dark. The ship is tilting dramatically. The women have to hold on to the railing to keep from sliding down the length of the ship that remained above water. How many people were on board? Uh, Around 500. Oh, my God. At this point, the women are about 60 feet in the air. That's when they saw a lifeboat being lowered into the water and an old man waving at them to get in. But at that point, it was already about five feet away from the edge of the ship. So they had to jump from this sinking ship onto a hanging lifeboat. Once the lifeboat reached the water, they saw bodies all around them, some living, many not. There were hundreds The waves were 15 feet high, and the lifeboat is breaking up because it's being smashed up against the side of the ferry over and over and over again. To add to the problems that they are already facing, Heidi got one of her feet stuck under the bench she was sitting on as it broke. So then trying to get her foot out from under this bench, her other foot went through the bottom of the lifeboat. None of this is good. At all. I, no. In the lifeboat, they 
struggled to save two men who clung to the sides of the boat. Heidi grabbed on to one man's hand, but the people in the lifeboat started screaming at her. No, 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 no. There's already too many people in the lifeboat. Oh, boy. And she refused to let go until eventually the others agreed to help the man on the boat. She said, either I'm just going to keep holding on to him like this or you're going to help me save him. It's one or the other. Three minutes after impact, the ship was listing by five degrees. By 1025, the list had increased to 14 degrees. That's when water began to enter through the larger gash uh, that was initially above the waterline. By 1029, the ship was listing at 23 degrees. Only three of the eight lifeboats were launched because the ship had listed too far and they were no longer accessible. Less than 30 minutes after the initial collision, the ship lay on its side. Of course, the women are struggling to stay positive, struggling to stay afloat. And Christine is telling people, like, be very careful. Don't tip the boat over. We're going to be even worse off if we're just floating in the water. Don't rock the boat. Don't tip the boat over. And eventually she was saying it so much, she kind of got caught up in herself and started singing. Was that was it that that song? Rock the boat. Don't rock the boat, baby. Rock the boat. Don't take the boat over. Yeah. Interesting side on that. Um that is considered to be by many music historians the very first disco hit. And now on with our countdown. So Christina's singing to the people in her boat. Heidi's holding on to the hands of dudes. They don't know how far they are from land and it's been an hour. Mm. Finally, fishing boats start to arrive and the fishing boats are weaving in and out of the lifeboats and trying not to hit people. Sure, They got the people that they could on board and started making their way to shore. So what happened? Well, the captain had been asleep in his cabin and the crew were watching a soccer match on TV. The crew had placed the ship on autopilot. Literally. So there were no crew members on the bridge, even though, even with autopilot on, standard practice is for at least one person to be on the bridge, and that person should be an officer. The crew had deployed fin stabilizers to decrease the the motion during bad weather, but the port stabilizer fin didn't extend because the ship was old and ill-maintained. So the ship was just slowly drifting and not going in a straight line. So even though it was on autopilot, it wasn't going in the right way on autopilot. Over 80 people died. And the fact that some of the crew didn't help passengers evacuate contributed to that death toll. They just took off. They did. Wow. That violates every maritime code I'm aware of. Yeah. And really the only one I'm aware of is uh, don't fuck over the paying passengers. Right. Pretty much. Yeah. The first officer was sentenced to 19 years while the captain received a 16 year sentence. Three crew members were sentenced to between 15 months and eight to nine years for a series of misdemeanors that included abandoning ship without the captain's permission. Now, obviously, a lot of things went wrong in this scenario, but one of the things that went right, Heidi and Christine. The city of Seattle honored Heidi Hart and Christine Shannon for heroism during this disaster. They know for sure that they saved the lives of those two men that they pulled out of the water. 
And probably many more because they kept them entertained with a jaunty 70s disco tune. (laughs) Heidi and Christine have plans for a sculpture to be erected at the site of the crash to honor those who passed and to thank those who helped strangers survive. That's amazing. Now, Rock the Boat by the Hughes Corporation stuck in my head. Sorry about that. Thanks. I did want to add that I found one article that said that a week later, Heidi and Christine were involved in another ferry crash, that they were on a ferry and that crashed as well, but only one person died in that crash. But Are that's they causing the, these crashes? No, no, but that's the only article that I could find. Okay. And that seems like something that a lot of people would have written about, right? I would, I would so, think so I'm really kind of unclear about how that whole hmm. situation worked out. So I'm sorry that I don't have a better answer for you regarding that aspect of it. But um, I didn't want to not share it in no. case it is true because, wow, right? I got my information from ResearchGate, from the Globe and Mail, from MaritimeCypress.com, the Seattle Times, Wikipedia, and I Survived. It was an excellent episode, by the way. <laughs> That's some amazing heroism there. And, you know, I think about those things. Like when we go on a cruise, mm. you know, if, what happens if something bad happens and, you know, we're forced to abandon ship? How would I react? Would I be helpful? Would I finish my salad before I, I left? What, would I would I just be in the way? No, no, no. You'd be helpful. You're always helpful. Well, I'm going to be helpful right now and stop talking about this. Um, we did want to mention that uh, at this point, now we, we did record this episode a little bit early. But by the time you're listening to this, tickets for some of our shows, our live shows, will be on sale. So you can go to theboxofoddities.com, click on the live show link, and uh, get your tickets to either Nashville or Huntsville. And perhaps we'll have some more shows on there by the time this airs, too. Go, go and check. Go, go, go. Come hang out with us. We would love to see you. And we look forward to seeing you next time. Until then. Keep flying that freak flag. And fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those to whom I report to beseech you for assistance. We ask but one thing of you, to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True. That is, two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2022. All rights reserved. Rock the boat. Don't rock the boat, baby. Rock the boat. Don't tip the boat over. Rock the boat. Don't rock the boat, baby. Rock Rock the the boat. boat. Do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlwood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, 
women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts.